Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. So I figured we would just get started rather than our typical preamble. So uh, welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. Uh, how are you doing today, Chris? Doing good. It's, it's almost the end of, I, I see the light is is coming through at the end of the tunnel, but we got a lot of marking to do as well. Yes, marking is brutal. I remember doing that. Occasionally I do that, not as often as other people, so I have it easy that way. Now I'm um, getting all the research requests and stuff like that and thinking about collection development for the spring. That's like my marking equivalent. So as a librarian, you were commenting, oh, by the way, we didn't do any preamble discussion today. I just started recording the conversation. I'd be kind of curious to know if this changes the flavor of the podcast. Uh, maybe it'll make it a little bit more spicy. That's my hope. Because <laughs> we need a little bit more spice. You were commenting, uh, we don't do a video podcast. I suppose we could. Um, I don't know that I really want people to see uh, the basement dwellings that I that I partake from. I suppose I could use a background, but I don't, I don't do that. You were commenting that I looked fancy today because uh, I was wearing a scarf. Yeah. Well, most of our yeah. listeners are from Canada, but for those of those, for those folks who, who are not from Canada, specifically not from Alberta, it's really cold here. This is relatively mild uh, today. I don't know what, what the temperature is. It's uh, four degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is Fahrenheit. I don't know, 20, 15, something like that. I have no idea. Um, but it's cold in my basement, hence the scarf and the oil heater that I have running. So that's why I look this way. Just just so you know, you always look much warmer in your basement. Yeah. You know, I've noticed it's kind of cold down here as well. Uh, sometimes I, I sit down and um, I don't notice in, uh, for like an hour or two, but my hands started getting cold. Now I've started turning yeah. up the heat, but it's it's a bit of a mixed bag because uh, if uh, especially in Alberta, it's not as humid, so then it gets kind of dry as well. Yeah. So you could run a humidifier and turn up the heat. <laughs> yes, that's the other option. I mean, we do have that, but it's it's never as uh, you know humid as you need. So. Um. We have a few things on the agenda today. Uh, you put pretty much everything together. So thank you for finding and keeping updated on all the chat GBT articles and the chatbot articles. Um, I suppose we would start with that. I could also, uh, and then move on to some open education stuff. I can, I can share what I shared with you earlier, perhaps, if that's of interest to folks. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think... Uh... It's always something that do you uh, want to start with that or do you want to start with chat GPT? What would you like to do? Well, whatever you like. I, I mean, I came up with the title too, bing it on. <laughs> so. Okay. Okay. Uh, so we can, we'll start with the AI stuff uh, and then we'll go into open education after that. So I have all your articles open. Um, okay. There's many, many of them. So uh, I don't know that we'll be able to talk about each of these uh, maybe we'll start with the uh, the Fortune One. Maybe you can walk us through the the Fortune School, the Wharton uh, professor of business, and then maybe we'll just uh, you can advise on the best ones to link to because there's a bunch of different directions here that we could talk about, and I'm not really sure what the best order is. 
Yeah, I don't know either. It's uh, there's a lot that's happened. Uh, it's always uh, I don't know for the last how many ever months it's just been everything is AI related, and so uh, um, a lot of stuff is happening. And uh, this uh, first one, this Warden one, it was interesting because uh, he gave uh, his students uh, a project, a business project to work on for thirty minutes. And uh, the title talks about the results being superhuman because normally it would have probably taken weeks uh, and having like full dedicated uh, people working on this. And so, uh, again, that's uh, some of the power that you can go and, uh, uh, you know, achieve with these AI tools. And so in his case, uh, he actually used uh, both um, GPD-4 as well as uh, there was MidJourney as well. Uh, to create some images and and so on. I mean, it's pretty impressive what uh, you can go and accomplish with, um, especially these uh, these uh, image generators. So, what was? Can you walk us like what was the project he had students do, and what did he get them? What did he get the AI to do? Yeah, so uh, he instructed Bing to teach itself about uh, a game, uh, a, a business simulation of a market, and so but he then, created uh, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I I don't know if he created it, but it, it was uh, he was instructing using this business uh, simulation market, and then uh, one of the things that he put in as a prompt it was uh, pretend that you're a marketing genius and produce a document that outlines an email marketing campaign and a single web page to promote the game, and so in three minutes it generated four emails totaling. 1,757 words. And then uh, he asked Bing to outline the website, including graphics. Uh, and then he used GPT-4 to go and create the site itself. Then he used a mid journey to go and create images uh, using text prompts uh, for the hero image for the website. Uh, he asked Bing to go and start a social media campaign. It produced uh, posts for both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, he asked for a script uh, for a video uh, where uh, to go and actually create um, uh, the video and the AI tool was uh, 11 labs uh, to create a realistic voice and, um, and then turn it into a video. Um, and then at that point he kind of ran out of uh, time. Uh, but uh, again, I mean, that's, that's impressive because normally it would take you quite a bit of time to go and do all these things. And uh, especially there's other, uh, it's almost like it feels like uh, with OpenAI now, they've created APIs for different companies. And so like Expedia, Slack, and others, um, you know, OpenTable for doing restaurant bookings. And so it's uh, almost kind of reminiscent of when Apple created an app store. And so yeah. now there's a bunch of companies that are creating these plugins, uh, these APIs to go and uh, work with their platforms. And so, uh, and maybe that'll be one of... Uh, you know, open AI's business models is probably to go and give them access to these um, uh, generative uh, AI applications. So basically this business person was able to do in 30 minutes what it would have taken a week, roughly. Yeah, and you'd probably need a team of people to go and put together all this, right? Because uh, you'd have to do market research and other uh, aspects, creating the content, creating the images. Like it's it's not an easy task. Like if I was going to do this as a project, um, yeah, it would be quite uh, quite a lot of work for sure. It's interesting because I, so right now I'm seeing a bunch of anecdotal advices, or sorry, not advices, that's not a word, anecdotal examples of, um, 
especially academics and you know in higher education because it's what we focus on saying okay well how how much faster can i do project x uh, using chat gpt and they're blown away by the results and i have no doubt that the results are a lot better than they expected i suppose my question is that what does this look like when things scale so this is one professor doing um uh one ex demonstrating one example of doing something with an ai that would take a lot longer with a team of people what would this look like if a bunch of people did this project um uh on the same you know a same assignment or you know a bunch of people used uh an ai in a similar way for similar types of projects i guess my question is is that would it would you start to get um generic results where you see a lot of the same tropes for lack of a better word used across this i mean that's one of the things that people pointed out about its ability to write essays and stuff they're like wow this is incredible and i'm like yes that's great but i want to see it compared to like a thousand other essays i mean does it use more or less the same structure and a fill-in-the-blank content approach uh, as it did with the previous generation i guess that would be my interest because I, I suppose yeah. in a it's kind of like the baseball. So uh, another way to put this would be to talk about the baseball stadium program or uh, problem, right? So in a baseball stadium, you're watching a baseball game live. Does anyone watch baseball anymore? But you stand up, let's make a football, <laughs> hockey. It doesn't really matter. You stand up in a stadium and you have a better view because you're standing over other people. But if everybody stands up, it's equalized. So is it the same if everybody uses an AI to develop their program none of the program or sorry or the proposals or whatever they're developing most of them don't stand out because they all have the flavor of the ai yeah well and i i think uh, eric like one of the differences that i find and uh, i mean again i've been are using the pro are you using the pro version the P uh what's four? that are you using no i'm GPT not uh, i'm just uh i've just been uh, playing around with bing so um okay which, which is the same is thing, powered by it? Yeah, from my understanding, it's uh, it's powered by GPT four, right? So I mean, there's there's limitations uh, the, there as well. But um, I mean, so I haven't tried the OpenAI uh, plus the GPT or the Chat GPT plus. Uh, but um, uh, it, from my understanding, again, uh, this Bing is powered by GPT four. But one of the things I think just by virtue of being connected to the internet, because I've tried it with multiple things, you're you're right. Sometimes if you put the same type of information in, it uh, starts coming off as generic. So it depends on the prompts that you give it. And, uh, and I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is uh, when it starts, because it's connected to the internet, when it compares what it finds off the internet uh, and incorporates that you know, that's where it, it can be kind of uh, uh, pretty powerful and it, that'll probably distinguish things. But I've I've noticed uh, even uh, going through, I, I just wanted to see it as an experiment when I'm creating some social media posts and I ask it to go and summarize an article. So I put that into Bing, I put in an article and then create a, uh, let's say a, a post based off of that. And there was information that wasn't even in the article that it's going and in, including in it. And so, um, I, so it's I mean, making albeit, stuff up. Yeah, well, albeit it was kind of interesting because some of those points, uh, they're valid, but it just wasn't when I go and ask for a summary of that article and the essence of it, 
it was adding in extra stuff, which it probably found from other articles. But again, if the task yeah. is to go and summarize this one article, you should focus in on that one article. But imagine, I mean, if somebody's in a rush and they just wanted to go and slap something together, and especially in uh, from a academic perspective, might uh, you might start using some of these AI tools. But then in that rush, who knows, right? You might go and uh, run into some issues, and especially with uh, academic misconduct and, and so on. And so again, I think that's where it, uh, you need to know and have a baseline level of knowledge to be able to discern whether something is legitimate or not. And uh, so that's why I, I still describe this um, this technology. It's like Wikipedia on steroids because it's not getting the best research out there. No, and it's, yeah, and it's pulling from God knows what, right? I mean, like, it's certainly, it's not pulling from all academic journals and academic research. It's you know, I don't know what percentage of good content it's scraping versus not good. It would be interesting to me. I actually, I suspect that this is a bit of a side because you had some other articles that you posted about uh, all of these AI bots that we should discuss. But one of the things that I suppose will happen, or what I what I suspect will happen, is that people will start to be able to detect something that's written by Chat GPT innately. Um, Meaning that just like I can better spot deep fakes, I can kind of tell now. I've seen enough of them where it's like, nah, that doesn't look quite right. There's something a little bit off about it. Um, yep. I can tell if something is faked using computer animation. Sometimes it fools my folks, but it doesn't fool me, which I think is a generational thing because I'm so used to seeing this. And so I suspect that after reading dozens of articles, the tone of the essay um, is going to is, is going to throw people off for the same reason that robot, uh, not composed, but robot performed music is often identifiable by people who like music because it doesn't, it sounds too exact. Uh, it doesn't sound right. Like someone, yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Um, it's too perfect. It's too perfectly timed. And that's just not what people play yeah. like. And so I suspect that people will be able to start to detect this stuff just from the style um maybe that's naive to think that but that's my guess um now we did have a couple of things in here uh you had another article so this was the same so this was super well this was different this was a substack so superhuman what i what ai can do in 30 minutes that's kind of the example um that's the blog article written by the prof right okay so there was some information about chat gpt bug exposing payment information i don't think there's too much to report there other than that it's an online service and it got hacked and uh, well, it exposed the, payment information. Well, the issue there was that it was actually, it exposed um, the conversation history, right? So okay. this is where, uh, and so far, I mean, from what uh, apparently they fixed it, but uh, you know how there is um, the titles uh, of uh, where, when you go into ChatGPT on OpenAI's platform, their website, there's a, the actual headline of whatever it describes as a chat. So people were able to view that. So they were able to view the history of what you're doing. And so this is where, again, like, I mean, just uh, I, I would caution everybody if you're going and putting in information into this, because these big tech companies, they're not telling us, they're, they're describing it as this black box, kind of like, a, you know, when you have an airplane, like uh, 
crashes and nobody knows what's inside there and nobody knows what's happening with this information and so uh, with that uh, i would be very careful in terms of putting any type of confidential information because who knows what they're doing with this um, uh, just from a privacy aspect and uh, but it, do, it certainly does uh, bring up some uh, you know potential issues if uh, people are able to view what you're doing in chat gpt and especially in the future, who knows, there's uh, all this kind of cancel culture and now they they find some of the searches that you're doing. So it, uh, there could be other implications. So just because we have this technology right now, I think I would be careful with it. I think the big thing right now that uh, I find like uh, sort of the general uh, with all these uh, articles that I kind of put together, it's uh, I would describe it. It's it's almost like a bit of a rap battle between these um, AI chatbots now and like east fact, coast versus west coast that's what i was going <laughs> kinda, for yeah, kind of <laughs> but it's uh, it's funny because the the one article that i put in there that's uh, you know the, both microsoft and google's um uh, bard they're actually going and perpetuating misinformation uh amongst uh right the, the, that was the, the verge article right yeah exactly and yeah, so uh, that was titled the google i'm just gonna just for the benefit of people in case they're looking this up so i don't want to interrupt by that it says google and microsoft's chatbots are already citing one another in a misinformation shit show and that one <laughs> so that was by james vincent in the verge so okay yeah. i just want to let people know what it was called so what's the basis of that uh, well and uh, it's funny because even since then so I, I looked into it a little bit eric and uh, there's people they're actually using both systems uh, and that's why i was saying like even this rap battle kind of thing so they're actually going and putting putting in prompts to both google and microsoft to go and have a rap battle against one another uh, citing the best of, of their platforms <laughs> and so it's uh, it's interesting how people think creatively uh, of uh, using these applications and and so these these chatbots, the argument is that they're often just wrong. I mean, it's uh, that's that's a concern, right? Because it's going to cite each other. It's going to you know create content that could be false. It's going to reinforce the false content by citing it again. So it can create the potential has the potential of creating a feedback loop for perhaps the uh, less skeptical mind. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it, that's at least what for... I take away. For those of you who have a chance, like we'll put these links into the show notes, but I mean, I look at the Microsoft one where it's basically putting out misinformation about uh, Google Bard being shut down and it's been shut down for, you know, uh, in less than six months after the launch, it said, uh, so, which isn't the case. I mean, it's, uh, it's up and running. Uh, it's just not as good apparently as, uh, as Microsoft. I haven't tried it yet. Based on these articles that you sent me, it seems to be the least reliable. There was another Verge article. So the Verge is all over this. Uh, AI chatbots compared Bard versus Bing versus Chat GPT. I think the takeaway from this was that you know they you should use the right tool uh, for the job. So like their conclusion is 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 I think the proper conclusion, which is that and I'll quote it. As mentioned in the introduction, these tests reveal clear strengths for each system. If you're looking uh, to accomplish verbal tasks, whether creative writing or inductive reasoning, then try ChatGPT in particular, but not necessarily ChatGPT4. 
If you're looking for a chatbot to use as an interface with the web to find sources and answer questions you might otherwise have turned to Google for, then head over to Bing. And if you're, you are shorting Google's stock and want to reassure yourself you've made the right choice, try Bard. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> and so I, I, I got the impression that Bard was just the lackey, like a distant third. I mean, I'm surprised that, so so for, for folks who are getting their head around this, OpenAI did ChatGPT 3.5. So they released 3.5, they've been working on this for a while. You have ChatGPT 4, which is apparently like an considerably better, but you have to pay for plus to get it. But Bing, Microsoft, which has put, you know, which is keeping OpenAI alive, is based on ChatGPT 4, yet the results are not the same. And so that yeah. I suppose I'm a little bit confused about. Anyways, and this article basically gave a variety of different questions on different topics and different approaches, asked the, the AIs to do different things. And then it did that test for each AI. So, uh, <laughs> so they, the first one was something that I was interested in. How do I beat Malena in Elden Ring? So Elden Ring is an open world video game. It's punishingly difficult, but it's a lot of fun. And this is a very difficult boss to beat. And so they asked, uh, each AI how to do that. And it, you know, ChatGPT4 had the had the closer answer. Um, they figured because um, oh no, sorry, ChatGPT4 is the clear loser, not surprising considering the training data stops in 2021. Of course, Ellen Ring came out in 2022. Um, so Bing was better there. <laughs> Give me a recipe for a chocolate cake. <laughs> GPT is the only one that nails this requirement. It shows a chocolate cake recipe from one site, a buttercream recipe from another, and shared the link for the two. And so Bard, meanwhile, <laughs> screws up a bunch of quantities in small but salvageable ways and understates its cake's bake time. So, you know, that's pretty funny. How do I install RAM into my PC? Uh, write me a poem about a worm. Basic math. So these are the kinds of things that they asked. Um, again, I'm surprised that Bing and ChatGPT gave different results. Well, I guess they're using the free ChatGPT. So that's why. It seems like Bing would be the, the one to use, right? I mean, isn't yeah. that ChatGPT4, except you don't have to pay for it? Or do you, does chat, does OpenAI hold that back from being? I guess that's my question. Well, I mean, I, I think some of the functionality, Eric, like uh, with the GPT4, you can even go and uh, uh, put it, upload images and other things, which I we don't have the ability within Bing. So again, I, I can't speak to how the GPT4 fully operates but i mean i i do think that there is value in how uh bing is act actually connected to the internet and can scour the internet uh whether those results are decent or not i mean that's another matter but it's uh, it's much more accurate like for instance like one of the things um i've actually experimented with myself um is uh, and actually one of my students did this we got uh chat gpt just the regular uh, version so uh, three to go and um, create a bio for me and the stuff that it pulled up was 
some of it was true, a bunch of it was false. It just made up, uh, you know, my education. Every time I go in there, it uh, it comes up with a different output as well. So that's I asked it just now. I said, who is Calgarian Chris Hans? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the prompt that I put in was uh, just draft a bio for uh, Chris Hans. And uh, well, it, it would put to, put together like a so, bunch of stuff. So all it has, it has sources and they're all from calgarysdevelopment.com slash Chris Hans. So oh, okay. has three this is in Bing that you're talking about. I'm using Bing. Uh, Chris Hans is a business instructor at the University of Calgary and one of the co-founders of and a strategist at MarketGrade, a uniquely Calgarian interdisciplinary consultancy. He has also worked as a business banker for CIBC and taught entrepreneurship and marketing at Mount Royal University. He is an advocate for celebrating, promoting Calgary's young talent, spirit of entrepreneurship and innovation and rich arts and culture scene. So, I mean, that, see, again, because it's uh, Eric tapping into the internet and scouring stuff, it's actually pretty legitimate. And uh, I, and it's interesting, like what you just pulled up, the what I did uh, last week, it was different. It actually, it pulled up some information from my bio at Mount Royal's website and used that, which I supplied, um, uh, you know, from my LinkedIn profile. Uh, to Mount Royal to include on the website. And so it, I guess it, I don't know how, what the algorithm, what, what's happening in the back end in that black box, but it's, uh, it's generating different text or output every time. But yeah, if you put that same kind of prompt in, um, in just chat GPT and uh, open AI's website, it's going to give you all sorts of stuff. It's uh, told me that I've gotten a degree from UBC uh, Stanford, this and that, like, it's just like, it's just completely fictitious stuff. And I love it. I wouldn't it's mind so having a, a degree from there, I guess. <laughs> it's, uh, it's kind of funny. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't know what to say about the misinformation. I mean, there's a lot of talk these days about misinformation and, um, Oh, how do I get into this without making this a political podcast? This is extremely difficult. I would say that there are certainly debates in the misinformation discussions uh, that are happening because, you know, one side doesn't like the opinions of the other side, namely the, the political polar polls. That aside, when I think of misinformation uh, as a professional, I think of things, you know, not so much that can be interpreted. I mean, there's there's things that we don't know, and there's good arguments on both, uh, you know, for lots of different answers to things that we don't know. That's not really misinformation until we know for a fact what something is. What I find more concerning about misinformation and the chats is that they, it's not so much that they're putting in things that could be right or wrong. They're putting in things that are just totally wrong, <laughs> flat out lies. <laughs> it's one thing, it'd be, it would be like, telling people that I had won, you know, the Stanley cup. I mean, that's just wrong. I mean, I have never played hockey at that level. I haven't played hockey for years, even though I played it for some time. And so that's yeah. just, that's just wrong. And so I find it, I do find it concerning that Pete, that it's putting these things in. I mean, ultimately I suppose uh, the user has to be aware. And if they're silly enough to just accept that and put it in without thinking it through, then it's really their fault. I can't really blame the AI. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, but 
It is interesting uh, that some are good for different things. Is it worth paying for chat GPT plus? I'm, I'm tempted to try it for a month, but it's expensive. It's $20 a month US. I mean, that's like a million dollars a month Canadian. <laughs> I can't afford that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because one of my uh, buddies, he, can I claim he's it? A, can I? <laughs> I'm sure you, you could probably, if it's like a business expense, but um, you know, one of my friends, he just got a new job and uh, it was interesting. So he's actually got a, a really high uh, position in this uh, company. And one of the first things that he did was he just put it into regular chat GPT and uh, it created a, like a free plan one. for him. The free one, yeah, the, that's available for everybody for research purposes, whatever that research might be. And uh, it created a plan for him now that he's gotten into this job for the next six months. And that was with the free one. And so I, one of the things, I mean, he's he has like a company car or a car, um, uh, what is it, allowance and other things. And I'm like, why don't you pay GPT plus, right? Like the, you can afford yeah, it. Yeah, why not? And he goes... I don't think it's necessary. This uh, this GPT three free version is good enough. <laughs> it's uh, it's given him a roadmap for the next six months without even doing anything in a minute. I mean, there's really interesting applications. Like I, uh, one of my students told me last week, uh, his parents are going for a trip on the east coast of Canada, and they're going there for a month, uh, and they put in uh, you know an itinerary for thirty days of stuff to do in you know let's say nova scotia or pei and uh, i mean it, in one minute it's just blah 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 it generates it right so it's well, that it's, stuff is good that that i like i mean and that's like you can go and edit that and you can be like ah i'm not interested in this and then you can work from it so like that stuff is great and i don't think that's really a threat to people yeah um that's just busy work to search that stuff manually so that's pretty cool. I would be a little bit more concerned about the business plan, actually, because like, <laughs> like if it doesn't work out, it's like, are you going to blame? Yeah. You don't want to tell people use chat. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, right? Like, I mean, uh, I've heard of some people that are even saying that uh, they'll uh, maybe they'll go and do stock analysis based off of uh, using oh. these. And I, I don't know. I mean, you, Think about it. It might be a good idea if it can go and analyze that much data. But are you going to rely on this algorithm that we don't know much about? Well, and I would also point out um, that, you know, there's lots of things. So once everybody, you know, markets, there, there, there are some evidence that markets behave differently because everybody has access to information all at the same time. Yeah. So it changed the market. So if everybody starts using chat GPT, you know, auto trading, there's all sorts of algorithms that do this stuff. And that has fundamentally changed um, the way the market works just because everybody uses these tools. So if everybody starts using AI to do stock analysis, that's going to change the nature of how volatile or how often stocks up and down, it's going to change day trading if that's what you do. And so I don't know that it'll be an advantage for more than like a week. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it's like, it's like you give, again, it's the baseball stadium problem. Everybody, everybody stands up. So now what do you do? That's the new baseline. And in some, you know, and so the argument is always that, well, now I need a ladder so I can stand higher. And I'm like, is there an advantage to sitting down when everybody is standing in a baseball stadium, if they're watching the wrong game? <laughs> that's another way to think about this problem, right? <laughs> like, is it easier to ignore the game that everyone's watching and watch something different? And um, 
And so I'm just kind of curious how this will start to move the market, especially if it's used for finances. I suppose that's a good segue to the BBC article you found, which is AI, how freaked should we be? Um, Which highlights uh, Amy Webb from, isn't the future today? Uh, Institute, isn't she's a futurist, whatever that means. Yeah, exactly. So they talk about how, this article, which is written by Anthony Zerker, Zercher, uh, they talk about how, you know, similar to that professor, the Warden School of Business, um, how AI is, is more likely now to come for white collar workers. So it's like having a white collar worker assistant um, and then kind of explain some of the anxiety that people are, uh, are feeling around this. And of course, there's the inevitable call for regulation, which I'm always a little bit uh, wary of. Sometimes regulators don't know what they're doing and they make things worse. But that being said, um, what do you think about this and the, and the coming for white collar work? How freaked out should people be based on this article? Well, you know, and see, this is where, will it have an impact? Probably. I mean, we've had these same kind of when the industrial revolution came about, uh, it impacted um uh, work as well. And uh, really, at the end of the day, where it's going to change work, I think, probably the the bigger issue that I, I find, and, uh, you know, if you think about this, I mean, I've been reading quite a bit over the last little while, but uh, there was a, a blog uh, post that Seth Godin, uh, he made, and uh, mm. he was talking about how, um, really, uh, in terms of these AI tools, uh, whether it's uh, chat GPT and, and others, um, are they really a threat to creativity? And uh, what he said uh, in this blog post was that GPT and other AI tools don't actually know anything. Really what they are, they're pattern matchers and pattern extenders. And those patterns are called culture. So, you know, at, at the end of it, we got to go and uh, think about those aspects. And then uh, actually I read a, an article today that uh, it was really interesting. It's actually um, a professor. Uh, down in, uh, uh, let me just see where he, he is at the Rochester Institute of Technology. He's a professor of philosophy. His name's uh, Evan uh, Salinger. And uh, he actually brought about a really interesting kind of uh, aspect where he talked about uh, these big tech companies. What do they always do is they, they use solutionism uh, and, uh, you know, he kind of exposes the, the logic that and the assumption that basically the development and this deployment of this generative AI, uh, there's an underlying issue with that. And, the, you know, in terms of that uh, underlying issue, uh, it's uh, basically solutionism is the idea that every problem can be solved by going and applying a technological fix without thinking about uh, the social, political, ethical dimensions. And it really is a kind of a negative uh, mindset uh, or dangerous mindset that um, uh, you could have some unintended or uh, negative uh, consequences. And so uh, even recently, just today, I I saw articles about uh, some uh, prominent um, AI ethicists and, uh, you know, uh, there was even uh, Steve Wozniak, uh, Elon Musk and others that are signing a, a petition to go and halt the development of the these generative AI tools until we get some regulation or some policies in place because this technology it's it, 
it's adapting and uh, and it's being created at an exponential rate. I mean, on from a business uh, standpoint, I mean, I I look at a company like Microsoft, I find it really fascinating that they're moving with such fast speed. I mean, you look at GPT three was released what like October November, and then it was made available to the public at that point, and within months they integrated it with uh, the um, uh, their search engine with Bing. And then since then, I mean, even another thing that we'll talk about is how they're going to be integrating it throughout the whole Microsoft suite of products and their server, cloud server. But again, it's uh, something that, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, run rampant in the tech industry uh, where they keep focusing in on the solution aspect. And instead, what we should always be doing is, uh, you know, wrapping our heads around the problem and you know, I always tell students like uh, you should fall in love with the problem. And I, I don't know right now, uh, I would uh, even argue that a lot of these uh, things that are creating, it's cool, but right now this hype that's coming around with uh, this generative AI, who knows, who knows what the actual impact is going to be in the, the next little while. And uh, again, um, these big tech companies, they take ad- advantage of the, the fact that uh, the technology is, uh, developing at an exponential rate where the you know the regulatory authorities uh, lawmakers they can't keep pace what laws would they need though um about ai i'm not suggesting that there's nothing i just it's not clear to me what that is and this is not mentioned in the articles in fact it's not really mentioned anywhere other than that we need more regulation i see this drumbeat AI is coming too fast. We need more regulation. How do you regulate something that nobody understands? Well, and I that's, mean, you mentioned earlier today about how would they know privacy? You should be careful how the information goes. I would be willing to bet money that the people who built these algorithms really don't know how it works behind the scenes. I mean, there's many examples of AI experiment experience, ex, sorry, experiments where the researchers could not explain how the AI was doing what they're doing because it was an extrapolation of what they started, but then it, it moves beyond that in ways that they didn't predict, right? So that's the whole thing of AI. We don't even know how people work. <laughs> we don't know how these things work. So how would it be regulated? Like what would that, what, what do you think people would call for? Well, and I, I think this goes back to, I mean, we've we've had discussions on this in the past, but you know, in terms of uh, a, a clear issue, which we've already talked about, like data privacy, right? you have all this information that we're uh, uploading in there. I mean, essentially what uh, OpenAI's done right now is they've gotten a bunch of free labor from us and we're helping develop the, the language models, right? And then, uh, which is fine, I suppose. I mean, that was uh, the whole thing about uh, even being so reliant on Google as a search engine because... Uh, here it it saved us a lot of time. Like if I need to get directions or I need to go and find some information off the internet, and so. Uh, but again, that's kind of uh, the big tech's modus operandi is uh, to go and get us to do and give them a bunch of free information, and then they use it for their own uh, profit kind of business model perspective. Um, you know, so I I think part of it is that data privacy. I think there's other uh, things about uh, transparency. Uh, knowing how their information is being used, how they're developing it, which again, uh, right now, I don't think it bodes well, Eric, when there's um, 
Microsoft has gotten rid of all the entire AI ethics team is gone. All right, so yeah, that doesn't look. That's a bad look, <laughs> right? Like, so you go and uh, you lay off nine thousand people, and you're going and investing ten billion dollars into OpenAI, and now all your ethicists are gone. So I, I think just from a PR standpoint, uh, I don't know how you manage that. But uh, again, I think right now the some of those aspects would be uh, something that you kind of have to look at. I mean, I don't know if you had a chance to go and look at the uh, testimony, like the open uh, uh, testimony from the TikTok CEO. But oh, I haven't looked at that yet. Yeah, it's it's pretty short. It's about four or five minutes, but uh, it was interesting. There's a lot of interesting points that he made. Um, I don't know. I, I would still be skeptical in terms of the... Um, uh, you know, in terms of from a critical analysis, critical thinking standpoint, but uh, if they are in fact doing a lot of the things that they're suggesting, uh, I think it's a good direction because, uh, for instance, one of the things he mentioned is um, uh, not allowing uh, teenagers, so basically children under 16 cannot be direct uh, messaged. So they just don't have that uh, ability. They're also creating, they're using Oracle, I believe it's in Texas, and putting all of the information so there's a firewall uh, so that uh, no foreign um, access can be. Uh, and that's part of the controversy is that uh, uh, because it is based in China and the parent company uh, of ByteDance is uh, based there. So there's uh, uh, what's... Uh, the political kind of uh, dabbling of uh, China as a country going and, you know, again, having access to information and stuff. So those, those are things. And if that's the case, if they are, you know, putting in some of these mechanisms uh, he mentioned about having um, parents having access to see what information that their kids are going and accessing. I mean, I think that's a kind of a cool uh, approach if they are going that way because certainly facebook uh, snapchat twitter none of these other kind of uh, social media platforms they don't have any of that functionality and we probably should have measures in place but uh, again i don't know what uh, if it requires you know legal i don't know if legal is the way to go about it because uh, as we've uh, discussed in the past a lot of these companies they're making so much money that they don't care it's uh, it's like the equivalent, even if they did get fined, it's the equivalent of paying a parking ticket. And so they just well, exactly. the fines. It's not, it's not enough of it. It would be, yeah. Yeah, it's not enough of, there's nothing they could do to fine uh, that would work. Unless they said, oh, you have to, you know, if you break the rule, you have to give us all a year's worth of profits or something. That would be the appropriate fine to make someone pay attention. I do the the idea of oh you can't direct message somebody who's a certain age though that to me that it, not being able to direct message someone would then just tell you that they're a young person <laughs> so it would just reveal their age below a certain level um, yeah I, I I suppose this is the uh, you know I'm going to get accused of of being a you know some sort of like free market absolutist which is really not the argument I'm trying to make. I, I just, I have a hard time believing that regulators who can barely use the technology themselves, who say they want more competition than come in and create rules. I mean, usually regulation benefits the people who are there and makes it very difficult for new companies to come in. And so we have a Chinese company or Chinese owned company, TikTok, that is eating everybody's lunch 
And so the established incumbents are angry about that. So they have now lobbied the government to investigate their competition. That's basically what I see. Um, I can't imagine that this is coming up because they're Chinese. I mean, I know that that's the excuse and China is a technocratic dictatorship, like I get it. But uh, Facebook, Insta Facebook, Instagram, same company, uh, Twitter, all that, all, they all do the same thing. And so I, it's hard for me to believe that TikTok is worse. They're just a better, they're just better at recommending things that you're interested in. They're, they have a better algorithm. They innovated and then they were able to get a better market share. And now they're being punished for innovating because they're doing better than their competition. Yeah, but keep in mind, like, I mean, on the, on the flip side, all of the, uh, the North American based companies that have these social media platforms, they're banned in China. Right. So there is obviously there's a, a political aspect that you do have to. Oh, have for to sure. Put it, totally. Right. And that's and that's where I think from the foreign threat, because it really uh, I mean, the next war, I mean, we kind of talked about AI wars, but the now, uh, you know, the cold uh, arms race, it's more technology based. Right. And so, uh, again, uh, it's uh, and I think we possibly have chatted about this in the past, but uh, like TikTok, the Chinese version, so they because the parent company has a Chinese version of TikTok in uh, in uh, China. So they limit the amount of time that you can spend on there. They, they provide educational videos, and apparently in his testimony, he mentioned the same thing as uh, the case here in uh, in um, North America as well. Which uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't uh, use TikTok. I don't want to go and watch videos. Yeah, I don't use it either. <laughs> right? Like I, I've. I've looked at it. I've tried it. I've deleted it. Uh, you know, again, you have to be aware of uh, all these, but I've deleted every app uh, on my phone uh, just to go and uh, make sure that I don't get distracted. And so, uh, uh, again, it is kind of uh, alarming because I look at, uh, you know, some of the um, the commentary, like uh, I saw this one 60 minutes uh, episode where uh, they were uh, talking about how uh, children in in China, because of the videos that they're watching, they are the number one career there is to be an astronaut. And here in uh, it's uh, in North America, it's to be an influencer. And so imagine like 10 years go by, what uh, kind of impact is going to happen on your culture and your society if that's, uh, you know, and they're just watching. I mean, they're they're probably fun as hell, these videos, these dancing ones or whatever, but that's, that's what they're, they're kind of, uh, you know, putting their uh, talents and times and, and energy into. Well, I mean, and that's fair. I mean, like it does reflect the kind of, well, I have to be careful how I say this. It, it reflects what I perceive to be kind of like a moral decline. I know that sounds really negative, but Eric's biases aside from sitting in his ivory tower, I would be nice to know what the comparison is. Like, was the previous most interesting thing to be, you know, Miss America or to be a Hollywood actor? I mean, if that's the comparison from previous decades, I don't see the threat. And so my question is always compared to what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Again, I mean, I don't, I don't think we either of us have the answer, right? It's, uh, but there's definitely social and ethical implications that we have to look at. I mean, look at we know for a fact, like Chat GPT. I mean, it's going and uh, generating sometimes, uh, you know, and 
actually creating like factual errors. Uh, and I mean, we know uh, Google barfs even worse, right? So there's a, not only is there errors, there's a logical inconsistencies, there's uh, blunders that are happening, right? So uh, I think if they could just, I, and I think you're very well right, they, they probably don't know how this technology works either. So do we just let it out in the wild and <laughs> see what happens? I don't know that there's another way to test it. I mean, like huge, uh, yeah, I, I guess I, um, I guess the way I see it is that it, this is like a huge data set. Uh, it's impossible to perfect it before it goes public. It's, it's like, it's like, um, a good comparison. So I had a, I had a, the reason I bring this up is that I had a colleague of mine be like, why would they release this beta? Like, why were they, why were they releasing this into the world? And I'm like, you know, the mantra of the open source software movement. Um, I, I highly recommend by the way that our, that our listeners, if you're interested in open source, which open AI is to some extent, um, I would strongly recommend reading Eric Raymond's book, uh, the cathedral and the bazaar which is all about the start of the open source movement, what hacking was really about. Um, and the, the idea was, is that with enough eyeballs, all bugs, meaning that computer bugs become shallow, meaning that if you release the code and then accept fixes to that code and millions of people can look at it, it's gonna be better quality software than a team of 10 people in a closed proprietary environment because there's just simply more people and different perspectives and skill sets to be able to spot the errors in the code. And I, I would say that it's probably the same for AI. I don't think there's any way to perfect. I mean, there's no way that the team is gonna be able to sit there and ask it every conceivable question and evaluate which are false and which are not and, and correct that, especially if it has access to live data the internet, which is a growing corpus of content, because there's going to be more information and misinformation there that it's pulling from. So I don't know what they could do other than to launch a half-baked product. I mean, for a half-baked product, ChatGPT is very good. Oh, it is. It's. Uh, I mean, I think it's amazing. So, I, it's amazing. What else technology, could they have done? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But again, I, I think this is where like sometimes it's just a, a matter of um, you get this technology out there and we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And we uh, I think that's just something that we're going to have to think about. Who knows what the impact is going to be? I mean, uh, you know, people are scared of jobs and other things. But again, I, th I think if it, it could be a huge force for good. Um, but I, I don't think we can say that this technology is going to just be harmless either, right? There's, there's definitely like, I mean, I, one thing, look at, like we just did, we ran a, an experiment with me. Like a, one thing that I wonder is how did this data set, like, I don't know what went into it, but how is it even generating? Like where, where did the, it even grab some of that information? Whereas some of it was correct. You know, like that's like, these are questions that I, it's a little bit of a creepiness aspect, right? So, I mean, most people, uh, they probably don't have much of a, and, and I think it's just more so because of uh, the fact that uh, I'm in the public um, realm because of teaching and also with my company and stuff, but like, how did it get that information in that data set if it's not connected to the internet, right? Like the, you see where like, I, again, like, and I, I don't know how they would even, there's like, there's artists that are, especially for these image generators that are 
saying that, okay, well, you're ripping off our images and we're not getting compensated for it. Right. So again, how did OpenAI oh, yeah. grab all of these images and, uh, you know, and uh, what is their plans for going and compensating these artists? Well, they don't have any because they don't make any money except for chat GPT-4. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, this is, I'm not, I'm not trying to defend the company. I'm just trying to say, I don't see, it sucks that they're breaking the rules. It's clear that there could be copyright implications. I don't know that they would ever have been able to get the copyright clearance prior. So my conclusion is that the only way to advance the product that they're trying to sell is to rip people off and release the beta. I just don't know another way that you could even get the data to make it better. Like you just have to risk the lawsuit. I mean, then that's not the only technology that does that, right? There's lots of there's history of technological advances. There's lots of like, well, we're just going to hope that nobody notices that we, you know, committed some uh, patent violation or copyright because it's the only way to build this. The alternative would be to not. I'm not saying that makes it right. I suspect that's what they're thinking. But again, see, like, doesn't that, I mean, that speaks to, I mean, it's good. We're having like a healthy discussion on this, right? But like, it's, that speaks to the larger culture of these big tech companies, right? Like what was um, uh, Facebook's mantra? Move fast and break things. Well, oh, it's brutal. Right? Like, yeah. I mean, this this is what open AI is doing. Let's move fast. I mean, Microsoft's basically doing the same thing right now. Like to go, over, like, you know, to move in like a couple of months. Like, I think it's amazing business-wise, like, this is incredible that uh, they're, and I hope somebody's documenting how they're able to, with this large organization, that they're they're making this much uh, inroads in terms of innovation and uh, implementation and execution because it's it's amazing. But again, that mentality to just go and let's just see what happens. Uber is the same kind of situation. I mean, if you go and watch the the uh, kind of the show on it and uh, even just the the book that was written about them. I mean, what did they do? They basically just put it out there and let's break the rules and see what happens. Well, yeah. So I hundred, I hundred percent agree. I don't, I don't disagree at all. I would say that, um, there is, there's simultaneously a, a genius and an enlightened point of view, as well as a smugness that comes with all of these technology firms. And, and unfortunately, the reality as I see it is that they're, those are two sides of the same coin. If you think of a tech company as a personality, it's two sides of the same personality. On one hand, uh, we're getting to the such complexity that ah, screw it, we'll just release it and we have to compete and okay, well, we can weather the lawsuits. At the same time, um, that's one thing if you're doing some minor copyright violation or you know you're trying to be bold and release the app store. It's another thing when you're introducing technologies that have the potential to be socially disruptive, like social media. See, I think before this, Chris, let's say you were bold as a technology firm pre-social media. Like what are you really risking? I mean, Apple took a big risk releasing the iTunes store and getting all the music people on board and not having all the music that they could have in there, a bunch of holdouts, the Beatles albums, um, all yeah. sorts of stuff. It wasn't complete. What are they going to do? Wait? No, they had to run with it. 
I can't blame them. I think that's the right decision. I think that that's been the ethos of Silicon Valley for a long time. Uh, Facebook's motto isn't new. I mean, it's new and then they, they set it that way, but the ethos is the same. I mean, IBM, uh, you know, going forward with the IBM PC, Intel uh, coming out with all their processors and just, you know, doing the best that they can. I mean, quality was a strive for, but sometimes, oh, we have a, we have a critical memory leak bug. Oh, well, we'll just do the better in the next one. It's so complicated that it's difficult until you release it to the public to know how to perfect it. The problem is, is that now that, as you pointed out, that ethos has been carried forward with technologies that are potentially way more damaging because they affect people's behavior and they change what they do every day and they allow them to plagiarize and they create an environment where you can be anonymous and cancel people and do all that stuff. That was, <laughs> so my, I guess my point is that the whole move fast and break things didn't scale very well to things that involve a social cost. It didn't really matter when it was a bunch of people releasing software because that didn't, you know, they didn't connect people together. They didn't create falsehoods um, and things like this. And I'm not a fan of, you know, deplatforming people and stuff, as you know, I just figure that's the cost of a free society. I like Jeremy Lanier who wrote the book, You Are Not a Gadget and Who Owns the Future, which is a great book about data. He talks about how the, the people who, who run the future are the ones who control the data. And he basically said in a podcast interview that he knows he's living in a free society because he has perpetual annoyance, meaning that there's people out there who bother him, but that's a good sign because it means that there's other people are allowed to dissent. <laughs> so he said, as long as we have that, things will be okay. <laughs> there is an interesting thing though, but the, the move fast and break things, it is a somewhat concerning way to look at the world. Um, it, because it, it's one thing to release a product with a, with a footnote or an asterisk beside it and say, hey, we need to test this. Here are the potential implications. Here's what we're going to do if things go sideways. I mean, you could put a plan in place for you know a foreseeable future and say, here's how we're going to change things if this becomes a real problem. And you know, we really care about not messing up our society. Um, that's very different than a we know best attitude. I mean, that's like, I hate to bring it up again, but that's very much the, like the Soviet Union. Like, oh, you have to, you know, break a few eggs to make an omelet. And then, well, <laughs> the question is, who's breaking those eggs and who decides which eggs get broken, right? And then, so there is kind of a smugness. Um, an enlightened view that Silicon Valley takes. I think that's, that's incredibly reckless. Yeah. Well, and, and that kind of cavalier approach, that's the it's kind of the issue. Right. And so, and I, I don't think it helps with, I mean, I, I uh, like what you just explained, that would, that would be even something like just have that little bit of transparency. Hey, this, this is like here, like have that asterisk and um, you know, but what do they do? They go and say that it's a black box process, and uh, and so then it lacks this transparency, that accountability, and so and again, uh, whether we have uh, laws in place, I mean, they're just not going to keep pace with these exponential advances in technology, right? And um, and then you know, again, even beyond that, I mean, the other thing that I always just I, I look at uh, how this the tech sector in itself, like uh, it's a bit 
kind of conniving too in terms of how it uh, puts the information out there. Um, I mean, we one thing that in all this, like we haven't really talked about much about is what about the ecological environmental aspect of, uh, you know, running these data sets? I mean, people were complaining about Bitcoin. I mean, I, I don't, I would, I could only fathom how much, you know, of uh, resources are being used from, you know, electricity, water, other things to just allow all these calculations to happen. Wasn't that uh, kind of the basis of, of that article you found from Yahoo? It says GPT-4, BARD, and more are here, but we're running low on GPUs and hallucinations remain. Isn't that somewhat related to yeah. this? Yeah, totally. So it, it says, yeah, exactly. It says in this article, I didn't actually read this one as closely, but I think the argument is that, um, you know, because of chip shortages and a bunch of stuff, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, because I actually haven't looked at this as closely, but based on what I skimmed, you know, we, we're there's chip shortages, AP, you know, GPUs, are, which are typically designed for gaming, but also have happen to have very uh, useful machine learning and AI uh, uses because they have so many cores running simultaneously, especially NVIDIA GPUs, that uh, they're critical for this kind of work, but they're really expensive. They're expensive to make. Um, we have a chip shortage because of all sorts of you know, post-pandemic supply chains, plus this, they're made in China or Taiwan, and that's a politically sensitive place, so then they could disrupt the whole supply and then running thousands of them at a time using an enormous amount of electricity. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that one article, it just talks about the ship shortage. But I mean, if you look at it, like lithium and all the various uh, rare earth metals that we need to go and make this happen, right? Like, again, that's something that people aren't thinking about. I was just talking about this with some some of our students earlier, because even the fact that, uh, it, again, it's kind of just funny how uh, these uh, tech companies, they, they just put out, like, for instance, like cookies, the term cookies. I mean, imagine if they called it like tracker <laughs> instead of cookies, right? Like, you know, well, that wouldn't well, be very sellable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So and it's, the same you think thing, it's called like, life insurance. <laughs> they can't call it death insurance, which is what it is. Yeah, totally. Nobody would buy right? it. So, <laughs> and, so, and it's the same thing, like whether it's like the, the cloud or surfing the net, like they put these uh, kind of like, uh, you know, natural you know, kind of terminology that we're okay with. But uh, I mean, I just, it's funny because it, you, you look at it as a society, as a world, you know, a third of the world, like 30% doesn't have access to clean water, but here we are, they're running all this water to keep these server farms uh, from, uh, you know, just to keep them cool so that these GPUs and servers don't uh, overheat. Right. And actually one thing that I, I find really um, commendable. So the, the founders of, uh, uh, Basecamp, uh, so uh, uh, which is 37 signals, they've actually have recently over the last uh, year, they've taken themselves off the the cloud. So they were they actually one of their investors have their and own cloud, and they're basically creating their own servers. Uh, and it's going to how save, is that better? Though? Well, I don't know if it's that much better, but it's uh, it's saving them a lot of money. I think the just the fact that people are now realizing that. You know, just because it's easy for them to go and offload it onto, let's say, Google or Amazon or Microsoft for their cloud services, uh, they're 
and they're publicly, you can see their blog posts, they've actually outlined how much money that they're going to be saving and so on. And so it's, it's interesting because it, there's always these kind of shifts that happen. Uh, because uh, back in the day, if you recall, like when IBM, they used to have mainframes and then you would access it through a terminal. Then everything shifted and we moved to having computers in the home. And, uh, you know, and now like we're going back, the cloud essentially is like that mainframe kind of uh, approach. Right. And isn't it funny? Like, you know, uh, Facebook, they go and change their name and everything was about the metaverse. And now the metaverse is gone. Like uh, they're even abandoning that whole strategy and everything's like based on chatbots. <laughs> and, and who knows, like this isn't something new. Chatbots have been around for 20 years. It's just they haven't been to this level where they're much more human-like in terms of the conversation, that conversational computing that's happening. Oh, what meta Facebook is doing. I have no idea what they're doing. Um, I don't know what to say about them. I, I would suggest that I have known very little about the metaverse. Uh, I can't comment on it other than it sounds like the only thing I would partake in if the world collapsed into some hopeless dystopia where I want to spend all my time in a VR headset interacting with, you know, fake people. I already have an Xbox. I don't see how a heads a permanent feature headset and media. Oh, it sounds like a solution in search of a problem. Personally, I would encourage anybody interested in the metaphors to go read Neil Stevenson's book, Snow Crash, where that term was coined. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> where the world has ended and then people are in yeah. this metaverse. <laughs> it sounds horrible. Again, a really bad, I mean, Facebook in particular is terrible uh, for finding these just just brutal comparisons. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure there's another company that has a similar track record, but like why, why name it after something that has attached to such a negative connotation? Yeah, like, didn't they do any, some... didn't they, didn't they use chat GPT to, you know, <laughs> ask where that term came from? It would have taken like 10 seconds of Googling to find out like, oh, this is like, looks really bad for our brand. I don't know if we should call it metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> it's like who's in charge of marketing over there well, what do you expect for a, from somebody who's basically he was a kid you know dropping out of uh, harvard and stuff and he's running this company and uh, again i mean it's that same mentality too right like you just go and do stuff you know the the repercussions be damned and let's see what happens it's like just a big large experiment well yeah exactly i guess i guess the the silver one, well, really a silver lining, but the interesting comparison to this is that uh, you sent this article from Fast Company, um, says Apple pumps the brakes on artificial intelligence. So what are they doing uh, to put this on hold? Yeah, so they basically, there was uh, some apps where they, they blocked them from, because uh, what a lot of people, what they're doing is they're trying to go and get access to these, uh, these various, um, um, you know, a generative AI kind of uh, APIs or whatever. And so they're, they're creating some policies uh, and to go and prevent that just from going out on the app store and uh, inundating everything. So 
um, especially when you go and put together, you have to go and submit. I mean, there, it is a bit of an onerous process. You actually have to go and submit for review. And so Apple does review the apps. And that's why the Google Android store, there's more, uh, I would probably be a little bit more careful about some of those apps that are there because there's a lot of just, uh, you know, apps that are grabbing all sorts of information off of your phone. Yeah. And then there was this article discusses that they allow some things in, but not others. So it's not particularly consistent. Now, I don't know if that's because no. of their policy or the fact that the reviewers are inconsistent because they're human beings that look at the reviews, not robots. Um, or it could be that they're just okay letting things in as long as they make money and aren't competition. <laughs> that's that's part, probably part of it too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in this case, they just blocked this uh, GPT-powered email app. Um, although I, I read recently, so OpenAI is actually creating an, a, an app for mobile on both platforms. So they're in the process of doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would be, that makes sense. I'm kind of uh, interested. Well, well, we'll talk a little bit about maybe now is the good time to speak about I find this idea that I'm going to, oh, write me an essay, you know, type up my, make a business plan out of, I think asking a chatbot to create text um, based on other things that you've created, do a summary of all these meetings I attended today and the bullet points for me. I mean, like to do that manually is, is drudgery. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a, a skill building exercise. I wouldn't say it's a particularly good use of time. So for things that aren't creative, um, I'm not going to get this to write my book for me. I'm not going to get it to write my own essays because it's no fun, right? It takes the, the fun is the writing. But for these routine operations, podcast notes, generation, these things are boring and painful. So it makes perfect sense to me uh, to use an AI to help bring this together because that's the stuff that just is in my way. So that's what Microsoft is launching uh, they have this new thing coming out called Microsoft 365, which is what used to be Office 365, Copilot. So uh, you can get Copilot, uh, GitHub Copilot for Visual Studio Code, which is like an AI, I think it's a uh, open AI powered um, like coding assistant, like that already exists. If you use the Microsoft Visual Studio Code program for coding, you can actually install extensions and you can install the GitHub Copilot, which is an AI pair program where you look for errors kind of as you do this. But this is this other thing that Microsoft's doing is a bit different. So they they kind of have this fantasiful video of, you know, insert, make 10 slides based on this content. You know, it's really designed, for, you know, for business executives. I mean, that's that's clearly the um, the demographic that they're trying to appeal to. You know, here's a SWOT analysis based on this meeting. I mean, it's it's almost comically um, business focused. <laughs> it, just, it had like nobody else in the video. But what did you think about this as a concept? Well, you know, and see, this is where like uh, further to what we discussed last episode, like. Even just producing that video, even though I know it doesn't exist yet, right? Like they're they're working on it and stuff, but it was pretty brilliant. I mean, I could see the power of this. Uh, I mean, I know of a, a gentleman who does not do his PowerPoint decks. Uh, he has somebody from Upwork, and so he's a notable uh, CEO of a company uh, here in Calgary. And he was telling me about four or five years ago, 
He goes, I hate that drudgery. He'll go and email. Well, I forget uh, his um, uh, gig worker, the, the freelancer is either in like Malaysia or Vietnam or something. Emails the bullet points by the time, because of the time difference, wakes up in the morning, the deck is ready to go. And so now imagine now you don't even have to pay anybody for that service, uh, having that virtual assistant. You literally are just getting this, uh, you know, the software to do it for you. And uh, again, I think this is where like this technology is really powerful. Uh, I mean, I, I think that uh, going in how they're integrating it in Outlook, where you're creating emails, uh, your calendar uh, in Word, uh, you know, PowerPoint, Excel. I mean, it's uh, it's fantastic. And I think, you know, the the real what many people aren't really talking about. And I think this is where I can speak to it just from a, a branding perspective. I just love the word copilot because that's that's oh, really what it is. Sound, that sounds like the cloud. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah. Isn't it like a fantastic thing? Like as opposed to like, hey, chat GPT. I mean, most people don't even know what the GPT is about. I mean, it's horrible. They should have probably named it something too. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, to have some something that is helping you along the process. Right. But yeah, isn't it funny again? Like just uh, how these... Uh, big tech companies, they just go and take these, you know, the way that they uh, create the, the uh, verbiage around things just to lighten it up. But I mean, that's, uh, I, I think it really captures like that, that video. It's a short one, the name co-pilot. I mean, I, I think a lot of people, they can see that end state and can envision themselves going and using this technology in that right. manner. So that's why this is valuable. So I look at this video, which we'll share in the link. Beautifully done. Okay, so this, this AI has been trained on a public data set, creates all sorts of misinformation. That's not really a problem as I can see in this, because it's like create a deck out of potentially content I've already working with in my drive and stuff like that, right? It seems to me like this is what these are designed for. I, I actually don't find, uh, other than, hey, can you write me a heartfelt email? Okay. You know, can you summarize these bullet points? I actually am not interested in AI to go try to summarize, like retrieve content and summarize it because I just don't trust it. In fact, I'm probably not going to trust it for a long time. If I said, now bring me back from the internet, you know, a list of sources about this topic, that's great. Do not summarize it for me. I will do that. I will interpret it myself. But this working inside the office environment makes sense to me because it's now it's thinking, okay, I have all this meeting data. It showed a spreadsheet of a bunch of, I don't know, client information. And it said, analyze this. Well, that makes perfect sense, right? Like it's analyzing something that's in front of you. Uh, and it used a public data set to get good at that. My question about watching this though, for years and years, we've been telling people, go learn how to code, go learn how to do data analytics. Am I the only one who thinks that, I don't know why I feel so spicy today about this. I just, I see all these flaws. I thought, <laughs> I thought for years that this was a huge assumption that, oh, you know, we don't need ballet dancers and creative writers anymore. Everybody needs to code. Everyone's going to be coding away. This, those people who provided that advice, if this is as good as their advertising when it comes out, are going to look ultra flat-footed because... I, I mean, if you can say, here's a bunch of data, I'm not a statistician, I don't have that memorized, all the coefficients in my brain, I don't know how to apply the Pearson coefficient to do uh, 
you know, linear correlation. I actually do know how to do that, but it's time consuming. And if I can ask the AI to say, you know, plot this and is there a correlation? Because I think sure. I look at this stuff and I go, holy mackerel, like this is going to, like, why would you need that person? I mean, maybe for more advanced things, do it triple ANOVA. I don't even know what that means. Some sort of, some sort of statistical test, but does it make sense what I'm trying to say here? No, I, I think it makes sense, right? Like it's uh, for the longest time. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this in the past too, where it's, uh, you know, everybody is pushing towards like all these STEM disciplines and programming and, and so on. And now like, uh, I mean, I even over the last like decade, we've used platforms like WordPress. I mean, there's, there's comp sci people that I've had like debates about. They're like, no, you should code it from scratch. I'm like, why would I? Why would I go and, you know, code from scratch when I can go and expedite? Sure, it's not as tight code-wise, but at the end of the day, nobody cares because now the internet bandwidth speeds are so high that it doesn't matter whether you have a code bloat. Uh, and uh, ultimately, all anybody cares about is the experience as a visitor to that well, website or let's say an app yeah. or whatever. And if you're designing a website because you like to blog, I mean, presumably what sells the website, whether you're giving it away for free or not, is the content. Yeah. So if you have to code some massive infrastructure, it's just a huge stop sign in the way of what the actual thing is, which is to do the creative work, right? And I'm not trying to belittle people who code. I'm not suggesting all coding jobs and data analytics will disappear. But again, uh, yeah, like I could... I could do all sorts of things from scratch if I wanted. I used to have a website, for instance, that was from scratch hosted on GitHub pages. Now, but I went, you know, I I got rid of that and I went to WordPress when I wanted to update it more frequently because it's easier. It's not like I can't code, but it's not what I that's not the goal, is not to code it. I sometimes think that there's um there's kind of a disconnect between the tools and the feature sets of tools and what the goal of the tool is, which is actually to produce something. So there's all these features released, there's tech demos about things. Um, but a lot of the times I notice when products are released, they don't really showcase what you can actually do with it. They just say like, wow, whiz bang, look at all these things. And I'm like, well, that's, that's actually not the purpose of this. Where this video from Microsoft is like, well, that's exactly what I wanna do with Excel. That's exactly what I wanna be able to do with OneNote as a hub for a bunch of different applications. I mean, that is exactly the vision. And so to me, they knocked it out of the park. But again, like that's where like Eric, like I'm, I'm just blown away with that everything that they're doing. Like, I mean, they could have called it Clippy. <laughs> they could have called it Clippy and who knows. <laughs> oh, right? like, such a missed opportunity. <laughs> but I mean, it's a, it's interesting times because I, although I'll, I'll tell you that this happened just a couple of weeks ago, I, I had some students, they couldn't do basic, you know, uh, um, just a subtraction. Like here I am, I'm doing it in my head. Uh, you know, we're just having class discussion. They're like, how did you do that? And they're so reliant on their, their smartphones. And uh, so I, I sometimes think like, you know, it might be a good thing just to learn the foundation and, and the basics. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, right. Like, I mean, I was chatting with some students even about accounting and I guess some of them, they still they kind of do a little bit of an overview of T accounts, but they don't really do T accounts because now all the software does that for you. But I, I think it wouldn't be bad to just understand how 
all the transactions get codified and so on, right? And so I don't know, and the, there's always uh, pros and cons to automation, but I mean, certainly like you're, you're talking about like analytics, uh, data analysts, uh, you know, programmers and so on. But now I look at even like Adobe's come up with uh, their flyer uh, or Firefly product, like as a graphic designer, who knows, you might be out of a, a job too, because uh, it can literally, t it's using the same generative AI uh, technology. And I mean, so far from what I've seen, it's created awesome images, like the, like photorealistic images that I wouldn't even be able to go and create. So like, a, you know, there goes being a photographer and a graphic designer and an illustrator too. And so what does it come just down fewer to? Fewer people can do it faster. I mean, I mean, just like, you know, you may have to have the foundation to ask the right questions of the AI. And it might be the case like pre-computer, you know, when you had like literally huge pieces of paper for spreadsheets where they were writing in the cells. I mean, now an accountant could handle way more accounts. And so accountants didn't go away, but the job changed. And that yeah. seems in line with, with everything. I don't know if I said this on the previous podcast. I may have said this before, but I joke with students, you know, they're like, oh, they talk about automation in classes and it comes up and I say, look, uh, think about previous technologies like the printing press. I'm sure people who chiseled stone tablets were very upset about the fact that you could, you know, print things on mass on paper with ink. And I mean, it's just the way that jobs change, right? Now, I don't know that a business executive who has zero design background would be able to properly leverage the generative AI that Adobe releases. I'm skeptical because there are, just like as a librarian, I mean, I'm sure that they're like librarians had to find everything manually. There's probably fewer of us needed now because we have databases and stuff. Um, some of my colleagues are fantastic at using databases. A lot of them are. They know how to search what they're looking for. Um, but sometimes they're looking for literature that they're unfamiliar with. They need help. It, it doesn't mean that we're gone, but it changes the skill set that's required. It, it, the skill set evolves with the profession. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I can do like the, the graphic design. I can do it, but it takes me like four times longer because I'm not using that sure. program in the day in and day out. Right. Uh, as a compared to like, uh, you know, my associate who, uh, he does the, the design for all of our client work. Right. And so, but now if I wanted to do it, I mean, I know like the basics and that's why I say, I think those fundamentals might be really still important. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to experimenting with this, but again, you know, I think Eric, like part of it too, is uh, uh, when it comes down to it, and this is what I always uh, try to uh, instill uh, as part of just even from a, a teaching perspective is that, uh, you know, what really is kind of, sparking that um that learning i think it comes down to like curiosity and uh, oh, yeah. having that culture of uh, in the classroom uh, where you um you're encouraging students to ask questions looking at different perspectives uh where they we challenge you know your own and also everybody's assumptions right and so this is where you you got to go and look at uh, uh it comes down to critical analysis, critical thinking, uh, creativity, problem solving. Um, so again, just looking at uh, applying the knowledge that we have and uh, you know these skills in novel, relevant ways. Uh, and so again, it, I, you know, it's um, 
I, I find it interesting, like we talked about in that moral panic, like there's, uh, uh, ultimately, we have to be lifelong learners, right? Like I've heard of students who after school, they don't read anymore. And you uh, have to continue, right? Like imagine if right now, if you, uh, if you were a programmer, are you going to stop? Are you just going to stop doing uh, and not look at any of this generative AI like applications? You're going to have to adapt. And if you don't, yeah, then you are going to be out of a job. Yeah, I mean, there's new skills are learned all the time. I, I guess like the fear comes from the pace at which people have to learn. At what point will we hit a threshold to where people can't keep fa up fast enough? Yeah, you know, the, their thing that they're learning goes out of date before they've learned the foundation. I mean, I think that's the concern, uh, and that may be a different. Then that may be what's different from the future than what's happened in the past. I mean, that it's moving faster and faster, and people are going to hit a ceiling for how fast they can learn if they haven't hit that already. Yeah. Well, and, and that always happens, right? Like it just comes down to, you have to have, have a bit of that mindset that, and willingness to try out things. Right. And that's what, if you've noticed now, uh, isn't it interesting? Like in so far, my kind of observation in academia, many people are just even, uh, you know, some of uh, the, the kind of professionals that are working, like they're, they're just hesitant to even try even hesitant to even experiment with the technology. And it's just like, okay, well, let's just, no, we're going to ban it altogether. Right. And, and so oh, yeah, like, cause that will work. Yeah. Cause I mean, obviously that's going to work with your kids that uh, if you just tell them, no, this is not a good thing. That's what, what's going to happen. It's like reverse psychology. It's uh, you know, they're going to want to use it even more. So, uh, but uh, again, it's a, uh, uh, I think you have to go and adapt. That's part of that resiliency that you have to, you know, uh, develop um, uh, with the times. And uh, I mean, I'm always cautious of uh, some of the implications and I think about some of these things, but ultimately I am pro tech. I mean, I, I, I enjoy it. I, I like um, all the, the things they're doing. And it's just what I'm kind of fearful about is just the, maybe the wrong, or maybe you could call it like what Google's premise was back in the day, which is do no evil, like the evil applications, which you might not be intending. But uh, I mean, for instance, like I, I look at um, uh, one thing that came out was uh, the ability to go and track endangered animals just through image recognition. So there was a website out there. And so that's great. Like, that's awesome. Like just people, tourists taking pictures of the these things. And the, so somebody created that. Well, guess what? Those poachers, now they have access to that information, that website. And so now they know where those animals are. And so that's probably something that they didn't think about. Hey, like, are we, maybe we got to go and close off this system or something. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting times for sure. Uh, so, but it's, uh, it's also exciting. Like, I mean, I, I can see now, like, like you talk about like that drudgery. I mean, some of those things, like, I mean, it's great that you know about how to do those, uh, you know, the, the the correlation the kind of uh, statistical analysis and stuff but i don't know if there's anybody out there that gets up in the morning and they're like you know <laughs> geez I, i'm looking forward to doing this <laughs> yeah i think there's value to no we're not going to give you a computer you have to learn how to do this manually in case you don't have access so well, you're a geologist in the field you don't have the internet you have to know how to run the calculations uh there's all sorts of reasons why that's the case. And um, it teaches you something about problem solving. 
it kind of speaks, it's not the same, but it's kind of relevant to the uh, one of the articles that you found from Fast Company, which is a little bit different, talking about the skills gap in Gen Z. Yeah. The tech now, so this is a different thing because we're talking about foundational information. Uh, but it does remind me of this skills gap. So this, what was this article talking about specifically? Or it's been a while and I just got... The paywall is going up. Oh, so. no, I don't have the paywall yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, okay. So, so anyways, this was, I inter- pulled it up. interviewed and... the guy from Dell, Yeah. right? From Dell? Yep. Adam Gary, Dell's Senior Director of Education Strategy. So this is according to a recent study by Dell, 37% of Gen Z. So I think that's folks born after 1995. And I don't know if that generation period has ended and there's one after. I assume so. Says 37% of Gen Z said their education did not adequately prepare them with technology skills they would need for their job. Meanwhile, 44% said they only learned the very basic of computing skills. These results are particularly surprising given that Gen Z is the first generation to grow up fully immersed in computers and phones. Yeah, totally. And, you know, see, this is where, like, I, I think one of the biggest uh, issues is that people just assume because you're young, that they must be tech savvy. You know, they grew up with a, a tablet or a smartphone or what have you. And so they just must be really awesome with it. But what does it come down to? It comes down to interest. You know, like the two of us, we're interested in technology. Many uh, of our colleagues, like they, they aren't as uh, interested in the technology. And so that's, uh, I think really for what, for us, probably the fascination is like, how can we become more productive and, you know, just the potential for these tools as uh, we've talked about now. Uh, but yeah, the many people, they just don't care, right? Like uh, it's, uh, again, it's, uh, and the, I think it's something that uh, even when I look at it, um, now, even within the university, I, I kind of wonder about it too, because back when I went to school, you know, like we used to, I remember it was actually my guidance counselor in high school, or maybe it was junior high, but uh, he told me to go and take typing. And now I wonder, like, do students even, is there like a typing class that they have to go and take? Right. My understanding is that there is not. So, so there's neither cursive handwriting nor typing, both of which I think is an error. Right. Like, I mean, isn't it kind of funny? Like we things that we had in the past, like this is, uh, it, it probably would be helpful to go and have uh, some of those skills. Like even back then it was funny. Cause like I, I had to learn on a typewriter and, uh, it, it was, uh, I kind of even questioned, like, are, are we even going to be when there's computers and stuff? And the, the guidance counselor is like, no, you know what? Computers, everybody's going to be typing and stuff. And it's probably going to be uh, worthwhile for you. I mean, I, at my top point, I think I was at like maybe close to 100 words uh, per minute that I was able to type. And I'm probably averaging like 50 or 60. I mean, it's amazing. That's which is, why, very, which is very good. Yeah, it's decent, right? Like so, but it, again, it's just, uh, I, I've seen it personally myself, like with um, uh, just observing students in class. Many of them are just going and using like, you know, their index finger. <laughs> like, okay, that's going to take a while. Or may, imagine like those that are typing, just using their thumbs on smartphones. Well, now there's the inverse to this, because for a long time, they said, well, we don't need to do printing and cursive because everybody types. Nobody's going to need to write on paper again. Well, 
Now I look in classes and more and more, what do I see? I see students with an iPad or an iPad Pro. They have that screen protector on it, um, which I'm going to highlight later. That makes it feel like paper. And they're writing out their notes digitally with the feel of paper. The feel of paper is better than writing on glass. The downside is that uh, it's easier to tag and index things with that style of note-taking on a digital device. I see students in my class with the remarkable tablets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is the e-ink tablet that allows you for writing. I don't know that it's worth that. So I'm going to talk about this in my tip today, distraction-free and stoicism. And you don't know nothing about this yet, but that's no, what I'm going to discuss. But um, I mean, there, there's two fallacies that we've uncovered. We don't know. I mean, writing returned in a huge way because while screen refresh rate turned out to get really good, And so did image recognition. So like the ability to write things out and have the ability to search what you write based on the computer's ability to understand your writing and turn it into searchable text, change the game. So if you can't print or you can't hold a pen properly, or if you can't write fast enough or um, in a way that's legible, you're out of luck in terms of using those technologies. Yeah, for sure. And so to me, that's a mistake uh, because we don't know what the future is going to hold. So removing foundational things, even if they're not immediately obvious, is an error. Again, it's that kind of smugness, like Silicon Valley. Oh, we don't need that anymore. We know what the future is going to look like. And it's like, well, maybe not. Do they do public speaking in schools anymore? I mean, I had to take classes where we were evaluated on public speaking. And here's the guidance, the gold standard for public speaking. How do you make an argument? Well, in an age where the chatbots can type things for you, uh, and so you can write things out at a slower pace for more creative purposes, and maybe more of your job is presenting, suddenly you haven't been prepared very well. Yeah. Yeah. Even that, it's interesting, like, because I, in my business communications course, like I tell them that they should memorize everything. And uh, now I'm becoming a little bit more strict on this as well. But, uh, you know, there's, there's people, uh, students that'll bring and they're reading not, it's not even index cards, Eric, they're using their smartphones and they're reading off of it. And then, you know, because, uh, this uh, the smartphone is an extension. It's a phantom limb of yours. So imagine during the presentation, it's a group presentation, and now you have that device that you use just for going and you know uh, reading your notes or what have you. What's going to happen? There's going to be that temptation. And so, how bad does that look when you you have a group presentation and your group member is on their phone while the presentation is taking place? Right. It's yeah. probably not the best message because if your own teammate can't uh, pay attention to the presentation what do you think the the audience uh, are they going to be you know like from a subconscious or subliminal kind of look at the message that you're sending it's basically not worth anybody's time that presentation well it's it's interesting you mentioned memorization so i recently finished a course through bcit on how to use adobe xd which is their prototyping tool to prototype what apps and websites would look like and how you can interact with them it's really fun i've really enjoyed, great course i'm going to go on and take information architecture something i've always wanted to learn they had a final exam online mostly multiple choice and then there was four written questions 
And it was open book because it's an online course. How could it not be? But I still went through all of the slides and my notes and I made a huge monster stack of flashcards for all of the concepts, like explain, you know, this many different uh, modes and methods for doing text or, and then there was more conceptual questions. And I went through that for like, I don't know, three, four days. That's all I really used to study. A few times a day, I would go through the cards. And when I got it right, I'd put it in one pile. And when I got it wrong or wrong enough, I put it in another pile and I'd focus on the pile that I did wrong. And a, a, a student in the class was like, why did you do all those if you had access? And I said, it, it's impossible to search keyword search through all the lecture slides. And, you know, while I'm trying to take this exam and also I was able to do it really quick. Uh, and the whole point is to get the foundational knowledge down. So I don't have to look that stuff up anymore. I mean, now if I was to build a prototype, uh, using the software, I, I wouldn't need to look that stuff up. I mean, there's just certain things you have to know just to do it on a a regular basis. And and so the goal was to do that. So I don't have to look it up for the next course, which is, you know, this course was required for the next one. And it's kind of the, the basis of learning, right? Like did super well on all the assignments and the exam, but, and could I have done really well by taking the whole three hours to look everything up and not study? Probably, but I would have been cheating myself. So I think now because of AI and these things, we just have to create environments that force people to, to learn that way. <laughs> because quite frankly, it's uh, allowing them to get away with it. It's just, a, it's a waste of their time. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like there's, a, I, I remember even when I went to, so, I mean, as a student at Mount Royal, I took statistics. It was open book. The textbook was like, I don't know about this thick. So probably like four or 500 pages. Many of my classmates, they basically didn't study. They just assumed that, okay, well, I have my textbook and I'm going to just flip through it. And I'm like, okay, this is a time to exam. I mean, I knew my stuff. I practiced all the questions and I did well. They didn't, they bombed it. It's the same thing. Like it's the same application now online. Do you think, you know, while we have the ability to search, if there's 400 pages, that keyword search isn't going to help much, right? No. And so you need to know where that information. And that's where, again, I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, typically I, I prefer if I am going to go and give students exams, I'd rather have like a, and you know, take home like where they have like a week or whatever. But even that, I mean, I was chatting with some students about that too. And uh, some people think it's going to be easier, but no, it's not easier because now you got to go and actually be even that much more thorough. And uh, maybe you'll have to do research. It's basically like doing a, a timed, like one week kind of essay, as opposed to um, uh, having like two hours to go and write a, a test. And then obviously your your responses won't be as flushed out. But I, I personally, I think it. You probably learn more by doing going through that exercise as opposed to being just you know stressed and confined to that time limit. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I wasn't stressed about it. I just did the best that I could. Yeah. If I didn't do as well on the test as I wanted, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on about why people are anxious about learning in certain ways. And that's a whole nother discussion, I suppose. I, I guess the way I think about it is what I've always said is that like, oh, I just want to do the best that I can. You know, nobody's watching over my shoulder. It's not like someone's going to come to my house if I don't do as well on this test as I would have wanted. That's why I did well on the assignments. In case I did badly on the test, I was kind of like, I have no idea what this person's going to post. I don't know this instructor. And it turned out to be totally reasonable. Um, I learned a lot and now I could 
I could go tell people I could prototype something for them in confidence. Yeah. I, I don't need any of the notes. If I really needed to look something up, I would, um, but I don't have to. Well, and that's the thing, like, I mean, how do you develop that expertise? And, uh, you know, again, it comes with experience. So like I didn't, I didn't take a course, Eric, on usability. It's basically trial and error with a bunch of clients. Right? So oh, that's fair. <laughs> so, and, uh, you know, with that, ex, uh, that experience, you develop that, uh, you know, there's certain kind of conventions and, you know, just looking at it from, um, you know, the, the audience really, that's what dictates everything, right? Like who's going to be visiting this site. So, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, I, I think all, if uh, we go through all these various articles, it's, uh, it's interesting times. Um, we've covered a lot with the, you know, the various, uh, even all these, uh, different chatbots. uh, there's pros and cons to all of them. And that's always the case. It's it's a tool like just any other tool. And it's just a matter of you going and using the right tool for the problem that you're dealing with. Did you want to talk a little bit about um, your celebrate thing before we move on? Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing a talk. So I was asked because some, some of my colleagues know that I actually used uh, chat GPT as part of um, uh, just to explain to students how uh, the AI writers are maybe not the the silver bullets that we're expecting. And so, um, and uh, in fact, for one of the other courses I'm teaching, uh, we're actually looking at it. It's called computer media communication. And uh, we're looking at, at doing a critical analysis of the technology and in the field of uh, public relations. But yeah, I'm doing a, a talk. It's called Writing Smarter, Not Harder, using chat GPT and AI writers in a classroom. And so this will be a, a part of Mount Royal University's Celebrate event. It's taking place March, uh, May 4th, 1030. Uh, we'll include a link. And I'm actually going to be bringing some of my uh, students that can speak to their experience of how we used these AI writers and uh, their impression of how we used it within the class um, uh, assignments and just discussion and so on. So, um, and actually while, uh, on that note, uh, maybe just to kind of conclude this part, I guess, um, I gave uh, to my computer mediated communication students, we had them watch Coded Bias and it reminded me there was one um, uh, quote in that uh, documentary, and I, I would highly suggest people should watch it. It's still on Netflix. Um, it's probably available through most uh, library databases, uh, but uh, it was uh, funny. They referred to algorithms as uh, an AI as weapons of math destruction in that documentary. So That's a great term. <laughs> that's a great pun. I love it. Uh, that's good. I'm glad you're doing the talk. Um, it looks like a good program this year. So I'm curious to see what folks come up with. Yeah, it's um, going to be a busy one for me because I'm, I'm doing a session right before then too, uh, where we're going to be showcasing how we're using HTML within D2L uh, hmm. to just enhance our, our sites for our students. And so, um, and we're doing like a panel uh, of a bunch of our colleagues together. So, but That's anyways, cool. yeah, it'll be a busy morning that, that day. And uh, I believe it's open to anybody. So anyways, yeah, maybe we'll see you there. So there's a couple of things I wanted to uh, point to. So one of them I, I mentioned already. So there's a, there's, a, there's a couple of products like this 
Um, and I can put a link to them in the show notes. I see a lot of people writing on iPads. And so I haven't personally used this. I'm going to order one very shortly. But I see a lot of students using this. And so there's a variety of um, screen protectors you can buy for the iPad. Uh, the most well-known brand is called Paperlike. And basically what it does is that it's a matte finish screen protector that gives a little bit more friction feel to uh, the Apple Pencil, which is your writing utensil when you're using it. So I would like to try one of these. Um, it makes the screen a bit more matte. It doesn't really bother me that much. I'm not using my screen for like, you know, photo editing that much. So, and then if you go on Amazon, there's a bunch of these products. So there's the Paperlike 2.1, there's the Paperlike two-piece. There's a Paperlike is the big brand. Um, some of them cost $50, some of them are $7. So I've heard the cheap ones work fine. Um, but my first tip for the day is really just take a look at these. Um, these screen protectors for the iPad that make the writing feel more like you're working with a writing instrument. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try one of these. The one that I really wanted was not actually available. Uh, it was sold out for a while, but I think it's back in stock now. So I'm gonna give it a go, and we're gonna see. I'm a little bit concerned about installing it myself because I have a fear that I'll muck it up and then I'll ruin it. Because yeah, okay. you can bubble. I, yeah, I know there's like, I wish I could take it somewhere and they would put it on for me. And maybe that's, that's an option. Um, so that's one tip. Now, one thing that we also talked about, we touched on was distraction free stuff. And you were talking about sitting or, you know, standing at the class with your phone, you're going to succumb to the inevitable pressure. And so I've been on a kick to reduce distraction, as you know, I've been interested in kind of what I call the kind of the uh, productivity guru industry. That's the term that I came up with. And so those are philosophies, those books by Cal Newport, our good friend that we've never met and others about how to be productive, but the idea of tech being distracting and how to kind of uh, reform your technology to make it less distracting is interesting. So I've been looking at, you know, how do you, what do you uninstall from your phone and your iPad and your computer? And the idea being that multi-use devices are really the problem because, because they don't do one thing, they give you the option to not do the thing that gives you resistance. Sitting down and actually writing is very difficult, for instance. And so it's really easy to open a web browser, go to YouTube and blow away your afternoon. So there's all sorts of strategies for this. There's a really interesting article I came across in the New Yorker. Uh, talking about distraction-free writing. So can distraction-free devices change the way we write? Uh, I didn't talk about it in the news because it's not a new article. It's 2021, December. Um, but it highlights a bunch of writing tools like uh, IA or a, yeah, IA Writer, which I use, um, things that help you focus, and kind of talks a little bit about these ideas of um, writing specific computers. And so I'm going to throw this out there. They talk about free write, which is like a e-ink screen writing only computer. They talk about distraction free writing. So if you're one of those folks who finds that they get distracted when they have to sit down and, and write, I'm going to encourage you to take a look at this article. Um, and they, they highlight a few things. Now, given the fact that we're in the AI era where everybody is perpetually distracted, everybody's you know just getting misinformation and made up citations from AI. 
I figured, even though this is absolutely not tech related, I figured we all could use uh, maybe a refresher on how to get away from technology and just change your mindset. So this is zero tech. Uh, there's a really great book um, written by, one probably one of the greatest books ever written uh, in the Western tradition by Marcus Aurelius, who was uh, emperor of Rome. And he wrote this famous book called Meditations, which, you know, I don't know how many, I have a copy of it here. I don't know how many of the musings uh, that he puts down are relevant, but basically a bunch of ancient wisdom, practical guide, guidance about how to conduct yourself, how to be a stoic, how to be calm, how to, you know, have discipline. He talks about all these things. So I figured it's just a reset. Um, I'm going to point people to this book in addition to some of these tips that I've outlined. So the theme here is slow down, write things on your digital device. There's a screen protector that makes it more pleasurable to do so. Don't type it all up. Uh, remove the distractions from your devices. And I can put some links in our show notes and you know, read a book about stoicism. That's about the best I can do in terms of telling people to be distraction-free. Sounds awesome. I like it. I feel like I'm telling people what to do, which is not typically my style, but that's my on the fly theme that I came up with. What do you think about that? I, I always kind of want to try this. I'd be curious to know if, if you've tried any of those screen protectors. I, I haven't yet, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, that does make sense. I think it's an interesting idea because then it does become a little bit more, you know, you have friction and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'm waiting for you to go. We'll see how it works out. I'll be the guinea pig. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, that's probably the longest episode we've done in a long time. So uh, I guess we can wrap it up. Sounds good. So how, okay. how can people find you if they need to? Right. I totally forgot about that. So uh, my name is Eric Christensen, uh, and you can find everything out about me at ericchristensen.net. All right. And... Uh... For myself, uh, you can visit me on my website. It's chrishans.ca, uh, so K-R-I-S-H-A-N-S.ca, and uh, my contact information and socials are there. So it's a pleasure, as always, Eric. Um, Likewise. The, the next one. Take care. Thanks. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe, as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTechOfficeHours. You can find EdTechExamined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.